Hey everybody and welcome back to the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf, the founder of the Macro Compass. As always with me, my good friend. Andreas Steno, the founder of Steno Research. Welcome back at the Macro Trading Floor. Um, a few practical messages before we get going with the show. This is the ultimate episode that we will um, publish at Blockworks. Um, as of next week, we will move to our own channel. Elf. So let's enlighten our audience on how to follow us from next week and onwards. So if you're watching this every Sunday or Monday on YouTube, on Blockworks, you need to now transition to our new channel, which you can subscribe to there on the top right. It's called the Macro Trading Floor, no surprise. And you have to subscribe there if you want to receive the notification that our new show is out. If you'll be looking for that on the Blockworks YouTube channel, you won't find it from next week. So go there and subscribe. If you're listening on this on a podcast, then you'll just keep receiving the podcast on the channel that you're already following it to via RSS feed. Nothing to change from that perspective. No, absolutely true. Um, if you're a client of First Republic Bank, you probably have to do something this week. <laughs> that was yeah. a a very bad attempt of trying to transition from the practical message into markets here, uh, Elf. But um, as of now, um, we're recording here uh, on the Saturday, uh, the 29th of April. It looks very likely that uh, First Republic Bank will be taken into so-called receivership from the FDIC, so the Depositor uh, Insurance Guarantee uh, Fund, as of Monday. Um, so... What does that practically mean? Well, basically, we don't know the end game, uh, but most likely, in my humble opinion, we're likely to get uh, a so-called SVB case all over again. So depositors will be uh, insured, uh, even though uh, some depositors in this case have a lot of millions, if not billions, parked at uh, First Republic Bank. We need to remember that some of the large banks uh, posted roughly 30 billion in, in deposits uh, under a month ago. And um, they're likely going to be safe, but we don't know as of now, Elf. How do you uh, view this situation? Do you expect the situation to mirror what happened uh, with Silicon Valley Bank? Yeah, I would say it's hard for policymakers to apply two different uh, perspectives on banks that have failed for very similar reasons, Silicon Valley and First Republic. Uh, that means depositors should be treated pretty well, also uninsured depositors. The interesting thing is that there are large banks who have just pushed $30 billion roughly into um, First Republic to try and stabilize it at the peak of the crisis. And um, I had some time to have a look at the conditions of these deposits. And for the first 120 days, these deposits were supposed to be treated basically like an uninsured deposit at the end of the day. So there was no preferential treatment, at least on paper, for these large deposits from U.S. banks. 120 days haven't gone through since these banks have deposited money in First Republic. So not sure what happens there, Andreas, but the paper says that they should be treated as any other depositor. Now, the FDIC could just decide to go to try and go blanket and guarantee all deposits. As we speak, they're trying to... Um, yeah, auction, basically, the residual value of First Republic, and we'll see what comes out of it. What I found interesting from a market perspective is First Republic was hammered on Friday. There were rumors that the receivership would have happened already uh, this weekend, but the weakness didn't 
spread really that much to regional banks. So does this mean the market has basically decided that those are really isolated idiosyncratic issues? And there is nothing even to worry that much about when it comes to regional banks in the first place. So what's your take there? So, I I mean, the trigger event uh, for the sell-off in First Republic this week was the release of the uh, first quarter earnings report. Uh, And it obviously referred to a deposit flight that already happened in March, um, maybe the first week or two of April, but not over the past, say, seven, ten days here. Um, The most recent sort of live data that we can get on this deposit crisis actually hints that the crisis is slowly but surely abating rather than the opposite. And I think that is one of the reasons why we don't see these spillovers to uh, broader uh, regional bank ETFs, um, large cap banks, both in Europe and in the US, etc. It seems like the crisis uh, happened a few weeks ago and not this week, in a sense. Um, But I mean, it, it, it isn't really a surprise to the two of us that we don't see a continuation of that stress. Um, we've talked basically over and over about the time lags between uh, an initial liquidity slash deposit crisis um, and the subsequent credit contraction. Uh, and typically there is an in-between period where everything looks okay. Uh, yeah. And we might be in that very period right now. Yeah, credit data released uh, at the end of last week from the Fed also show that credit isn't expanding very rapidly, but it isn't collapsing either. So it's we're basically in this transition period, and you know it's not like bank, banks are going to stop extending credit straight away. It takes time until this feeds into the system. The first thing you do actually is probably not renew the existing line of credits to the weakest fringes out there with the highest capital absorptions in terms of loans you have to, uh, to, to expand, you are not going to extend these credit lines. I think this is the first thing we're going to be seeing, Andreas. So basically, um, the fact that these credit lines are not renewed. When do they mature? Not, well, not all of them next week, right? They are phased out over time. So you need a bit of patience to see if actually we get the substantial credit deceleration. The interesting thing is, credit growth on rate of change basis was already decelerating before this mm. banking stress. So there will be some time needed, but I think the direction of travel is pretty clear. Credit growth is going to you know, decelerate pretty rapidly, both because you are at the point of the cycle where this happens in the first case, and second, because the banking stress will ultimately lead to more conservative decision making. Yeah. It takes time, and markets don't like waiting on a narrative, Andreas. I mean, they are... Yeah. If you're short anything, there are a, there's a very high chance you're paying to be in the trade. Mm-hmm. Generally, as an investor, putting cash at work somewhere, you expect to be paid to be in the trade, which means the other side of the trade, the person who's deciding to short a risk asset, generally has to pay to be in the trade, so-called a negative carry trade. If nothing happens and you are paying to be in the trade, at some point you just have to close it up and you know you give up patience is not great if you're in a negative carry trade. I mean, if nothing happens, then you're forced to unwind. And I think this is what we have seen on banks broadly over the last month. Yeah. And in the Japanese yen this week, (laughs) to take another example. Um, We'll get back to that uh, because I've lost some money in that trade, to be be brutally honest here. I wanted to talk a bit about the connection between the banking crisis, uh, Mm -hmm. the FDIC, and the ongoing 
uh, increase in the deficit of the yeah. U.S. federal government. Um, we've seen a very, very sharp deterioration in the budget of the U.S. federal government through Q1 and into April. Um, I think we're running at an annualized speed of 75 to 8% uh, in deficit as a percent of GDP, which is not what you would expect given the current growth and given the current employment numbers. Um, I made a very, very simple study uh, between employment rates, um, the ongoing growth level, and the um, expected deficit or surplus of the U.S. Treasury. And at the current juncture, you would actually expect the U.S. Treasury to be close to net neutral on the budget, saying yeah. in between minus 1% of GDP and plus 1% of GDP in that range. And you're currently six or seven percentage points below that, a bigger deficit than expected. So what on earth is going on here? Um, well, I mean, there are, there are few elephants in the room, actually, not just one elephant in the room. Um, it matters a lot that interest, rate, uh, interest rates have been on the rise. Um, I think we're talking ballpark 150 billion a year relative to the last fiscal year, just because the Federal Reserve no longer on a weekly basis transfers um, a running surplus to the US Treasury. They did that when interest rates were, were low. Uh, and of course, the U.S. Treasury now pays more <laughs> on the debt issues. Um, that's number one. Second thing is that um, the Biden administration has spent quite a bit on a few one-offs uh, in Q1. For example, the write-off in student loans, um, quite a, a material um, check for them to pay. Uh, and thirdly, which I find very interesting, we are also starting to see the effects of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, so tax credits given to, for example, the purchase of EVs or solar panels, etc. Uh, and the interesting thing, and, and I've actually said this quite a few times after uh, this Inflation Reduction Act was signed, is that we don't know the size of it. We can guesstimate um, a range of scenarios for the Inflation Reduction Act, but it's it's a tax credit structure that each and every one in the U.S. economy can access if they uh, meet the requirements. And if everyone meets the requirements at the same time, it can potentially be more or less open-ended, right? And it seems like this is a larger beast than what they had anticipated at the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, in any case, it's quite extraordinary that we have this kind of deficit given where employment is. You would typically not expect a huge deficit at this juncture. It is quite important because it ties well with uh, an educational free piece I wrote. It's on Substack. Everybody can go and have a look. Um, which talks about the most misunderstood concept in finance, which is fiscal deficits. Yeah. And you have to think of them as a way to inject money into the private sector. So, Andreas, you said it before, like this Inflation Reduction Act is basically tax credits. So what the government is doing is blowing a hole in their balance sheet by making deficits and handing over money to the private sector. Every fiscal deficit is nothing else than a surplus for the private sector in terms of literal money to spend, inflationary money to spend. It's less taxes you pay, which means more spendable money on your bank account. 
So it's it's an injection of net worth into the into the private sector. At some point, you might get taxed back in the future, but you don't know that exante, right? So you are literally having more net worth at disposal. That pushes up, considering all the rest equal, which is quite um, a consideration to make, but it pushes up the ability that the private sector has to spend money. Mm. So to support growth and consumption and nominal economic activity in general. It might be one of the reasons, actually, why the economy has held up reasonably better than people expected or analysts and economists expected um, for the last few quarters. When you expand fiscal deficits, you're giving money to people, literally spendable money to people. So this this is quite interesting. And what matters now is what happens next. So the story that I want to cover for a second also ties with the with the debt ceiling. Yes. Because because you know people consider deficits as one of the reasons why US debt is not sustainable. The US will be forced to default either in nominal terms or in real terms by basically going for financial repression for the next two decades. So maybe not nominally defaulting on that, but effectively in real terms, defaulting yeah. on that slowly but surely. And that every time we have this debt ceiling drama, this conversation tend to be very hyped all over again. So why don't we have a chat about a couple of things? The yeah. first I would go with is, do you think that this debt ceiling could effectively lead to a even temporary default of the United States? Let's get an answer to this question first. I mean, oh boy, we've had many opportunities to say that yes to that question over the past decade, uh, and it it never materializes. Uh, First of all, um, since it is not in the interest of anyone to allow that scenario to unfold, I cannot see that by the end of the day. We've had a couple of instances where we came to the point where like national parks and museums had to close for a couple of weeks uh, because um, the U.S. Treasury needed like emergency funding for another uh, few days or weeks um, while the actual package was decided or negotiated. Uh, I think that's kind of the worst case scenario to me still. Um, so no, <laughs> I don't think U.S. will default. What I do think, um, and I think this is of relevance to you out there as well, is that if you look at the, say, general forecast era of the U.S. deficit over the past three, four quarters, it's been one-way traffic in sort of always overestimating the budget uh, from analysts and from the Congressional Budget Office, meaning that the so-called crossover date, the exact date where the U.S. Treasury is no longer able to run on fumes by extraordinary spending uh, measures, etc., is likely closer to us today than what is generally accepted, if you ask me. Um, I wouldn't rule out that we already meet that uh, crossover date. Very late May, maybe the first week of June. Um, And that has been moved forward by a couple of months already. Uh, Reason being that you have quite a few potential uh, big events that the US Treasury would need to, to fund. We need to remember that ultimately the uh, FDICs or the Depositor Insurance Guarantee Scheme can borrow money from the U.S. Treasury if uh, the wall chest is not big enough to cover all of these banking defaults. Uh, and we're getting there. 
uh, I mean, it's, they, they cannot continuously bail out depositors uh, in banks of the size of First Republic Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. I think they have a balance sheet of roughly $125 billion. Um, that's not a lot if banks with a balance sheet of $200 billion uh, goes under with a weekly <laughs> frequency. Um, and ultimately, the FDIC will borrow from the U.S. Treasury if they need to uh, refill this war chest before they're able to uh, sort of recover um, yeah. the liquidity war chest with the running insurance fees paid by the other banks. So the crossover date could actually come earlier, both because of disappointing tax receipts and yes. because of potential disbursement that the Treasury should need to do um, to, to actually disburse to the FDIC to bail out banks. What that means is this debt ceiling drama needs to be resolved relatively quick as yes. we speak, right? So this is one of the reasons, I should say, why one of the most overhyped uh, things I'm reading on Twitter these days is happening, which is that T-bills, especially very short-dated treasury bills, one month maturity, let's say, are trading at 100, 150 basis points through Fed funds. Yes. And... Uh, people are calling for collateral shortages and the system is not working and clearly there is something wrong. Monetary mechanics here, the Fed is losing control. There are a bunch of narratives around this. Now, let's explain why this happens. There are a lot of very large institutions in the system that have plenty of dollars to park or invest in safe shorted instruments and they do not have access to Fed funds. They do not have an account at the Fed. Take a foreign central bank that accumulates dollars. Take the Brazilian central bank or the Chinese, the PBOC. They have tons of dollars to allocate short term. They have no direct access to the Fed. Take a pension fund. Take an asset manager. We're talking trillions of dollars out there. They don't have access to the Fed. If you don't have access to the Fed, what's the safest asset you can buy to park your dollars? It's very short dated T-bills. Mm. That's why, structurally speaking, any treasury all the way up to two years, actually, trades in terms of yields below the parallel maturity Fed fund swap, OIS yes. swap. So treasuries tend to trade at a premium below the Fed funds. Now, this is, this is what happens normally. This time is even more acute. And the reason is, if you even have the remote fear that the treasury could suspend your coupon payments for a couple of months, why would you even run the risk rather than taking your three-month T-bills and moving them towards the one-month maturity? Yes. So this is just an institutional behavior that tries to preserve uh, basically pay full principal and coupon payment as much as they can, and they don't have any other outlet where they park their cash in the first place. It's, it's T-bills anyway, and if you have some risks on the horizon, you try to avoid it as much as possible. You move all your cash as much as you can to before the X date that you, Andreas, are talking about, are, uh, are you talking about, and we're talking one month, basically. That's what we're talking. If you want to be safe, you're talking one, one and a half months here. So a lot of money has been moving there. And that's not because of collateral shortages or any other maquillage in the short-term interest rates or euro-dollar system. It's yep. simply because those investors need the safe outlet where to park cash. And at the moment, 
that's where it is. One monthly bills. Yeah. And by the way, the uh, the euro dollar system is basically no more. <laughs> I don't know whether Jeff Snyder will um, will survive that, but uh, at least these people yeah. Well, euro dollar futures are no, no more. Yes, sure. euro dollar sure. system is still well and alive. But yeah, yes, that's sure, 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 sure. Um, that was what I wanted to to mention, Alf. Um, so, if this crossover date is closer to today, and if that is why we see this behavior in T bill markets, I perfectly agree with your assessment here. Um, what happens when? And if we get close to this crossover date, and once we get the so-called debt ceiling deal um, in place, uh, I think there are a few very th- interesting things to be aware of in, in such an instance. Because first of all, what it means is that at some point, most likely towards the end of May or the early parts of June, the U.S. Treasury will very suddenly be allowed to withdraw a lot of liquidity from financial markets again, or for commercial banks, because they will be allowed to rebuild their own cash pool, their own liquidity buffer at the Federal Reserve. And currently we are talking about a rebuild of the size of, say, in between 450 billion and 600 billion, depending a bit on where they want to get this treasury general account to again. Uh, But it's a pretty material rebuilding of this liquidity war chest at the Federal Reserve. And we don't currently know the issue and strategy that they will pursue at this point. But I mean, they can either, of course, choose to uh, issue a lot of bills or they could move further out the curve, et cetera. But in any case, we know that liquidity will be withdrawn into the second half of the year. That's almost given. Um, whether it's in the short end or the long end of the curve, we will have to wait for, for confirmation from the US Treasury on, on that. Uh, but my point here is that we know that liquidity will dry up. Um, we most likely know that uh, several um, billions of dollars will be issued in T-bills relative to the current scenario. So the outstanding of T-bills will increase, likely um, at least providing money market funds with a sort of better marketing uh, opportunity for um commercial depositors at banks, um, meaning that this flight of deposits into money market funds could return uh, as of this debt ceiling date. I think that's a likely scenario. Uh, So I think what I'm slowly but surely trying to convey here is that the signing of this actual debt ceiling deal might not be good news for risk markets or risk assets in general. I'm slowly but surely convincing myself that it could be a timing in which to turn more defensive in your allocation, basically. You are totally right, and there are two effects to consider here. The first is the amount of liquidity being withdrawn from the system if you bump up your Treasury General account, and that is a number we can already estimate because the Treasury General mm-hmm. account by the X date will be as little as it can be, mm-hmm. so basically $20, 30000000000 billion, nothing left basically in there. A normal size of a Treasury General account is rather... 400 billion, 500 billion. Mm. So that means you have to rebuild up and take away these reserves and this liquidity from the system. The second effect, which we don't know yet, and it's really important, is how the duration effect and impact on market participants will be. Because if the Treasury would decide to issue mostly T-bills, 
then there is a massive appetite out there. I mean, you mentioned money market funds, for yeah. example, but plenty of players out there looking for T-bills at decent yields. Mm. And the duration of these T-bills is nothing, it's like three months. Mm. So it's it's really, really short and easy to absorb. If the treasury would decide to issue more 10-year and 30-year bonds, then good luck with that, because yeah. you will be inundating the market, not only with notional big amount of bonds, but also with duration-heavy bonds that require investors to take risks, right? To buy these bonds that are yielding well below Fed funds given the inversion in the curve. So in that case, there might be even some portfolio effect where investors have to make some room basically for the upcoming duration risk that is hitting them if the treasury yeah. would decide to issue a lot of long-end bonds, which could weigh even further on risk assets, right? Because if you have to make space to buy safe bonds, you will be less aggressive on allocating into risk assets. However you cut and dice it, Andreas, I think it's fair to assume, and I agree, that the signing of the debt ceiling, which might be celebrated as great because the US didn't default, actually means that you have to rebuild your TGA and it's net-net negative um, for markets. Something to consider, at least, to put there in your radar and think about the monetary effect of signing uh, a deal to avoid a default in the US. Shall we move our attention from the US to somewhere else in the world where we were expecting fireworks and we didn't get any, almost any, I should say, from our friends at the Bank of Japan? So what happened? <laughs> so, first of all, admittedly, uh, in hindsight, a lot of people expected Bank of Japan to, to move, at least yeah. to move the needle uh, rhetorically. Um, they actually moved the needle rhetorically uh, in a few sneaky ways, if you ask me. Um, so, so they, I mean, first of all, they didn't change policy at all. Uh, they still have a yield curve control uh, at a cap at the same level in the 10-year point. They didn't move the needle on the deposit rate, which was also something that was discussed ahead of it, etc. Um, but what they did was that they wrote explicitly in the press release that uh, they will now form some sort of committee to review monetary policy uh, in a sort of decade-long study uh, being released in a year or a year and a half from now. Um, my, f my first reaction when I saw that was that, oh God, these boys, these boys are serious now. They, they're not going to move anything until this committee <laughs> um, allows white smoke out of the chimney uh, to use a uh, European picture and Ultimately, that wasn't really what they were trying to convey as a message, but it was really taken as um, almost a confirmation that the Bank of Japan could not move anywhere the next year or year and a half. But beneath the surface, they made a few tweets, for example, to the official communication around the bias on interest rates. So they had a clear cutting bias in their communication. It's gone. I think that's a major step. Uh, because it's the first step in admitting that you can actually move in the other direction. Um, and on top of that, they moved the needle quite substantially on the inflation uh, forecast. So they now have a central scenario for the fiscal year of 24 of 2%. Um, that's a big one because it essentially means that um, Bank of Japan now at least for 24, expects to meet its inflation target. They haven't communicated that they're close to meeting the inflation target for ages. Um, and that is, those are some of the things that I would highlight. Uh, but ultimately, of course, 
I mean, you cannot speak against the market reaction. Everyone expected fireworks. They didn't really no. get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I think I do agree on the fact that the Bank of Japan changed quite a lot of things. While, I mean, the first headlines that caught the attention were 12 to 18 months monetary policy review. And people are like, oh my God, man, I got to wait 12 months for them to do something. No, that's not what they said. Because Weda was very clear that changes will be communicated bit by bit. So you don't need to wait for 12 months to get some results of this. And second, that changes can happen before the monetary policy review is completed. So they can happen within the next 12 months already. They took away the forward guidance, which is what you just said as well. This is in central bank jargon, the first formal door opening towards considering a move. When you take away your interest rates will be at present or lower levels, you're basically saying, well, I expect them to be even possibly higher. You formally open the door to a next move, which is a hawkish move. This is quite important. And as you also said, if you expect core inflation in your central base case to be 2% in a year, year and a half from now, then you know, there are chances that you can actually move the needle sooner than in 12 months. Now, basically, I would put the Bank of Japan for the first time in a while in the data dependency camp. Yes. Bank of Japan has never been data dependent, guys. Come on, they've always done one thing for 25 years. So I think being formally data dependent, which means people have to look at Japanese wages, at Japanese core inflation. Mm. Finally, you have to care about Japanese macro data. That is a news and the fact that they could move interest rates higher is also a news. Yeah. Why the Japanese yen was slaughtered? Exactly what I said before. If you are short the dollar along the Japanese yen, you're paying at the moment a, a forward carry of, let's call it 4% um, over the next, let's say 4% annualized. So you're bleeding carry basically to be in the trade. You're paying to be in the trade, in other words. Now, if you were building up expectations on top of that, and pricing them already in options, and pricing them already in interest rates. So you were front-loading an action from the Bank of Japan, you were pricing that in, you were bleeding carry to be in the trade. What happens if nothing practically happens at the meeting is that you're forced to unwind the trade. You don't want to own a trade which is not going to be monetizable over the next two to three weeks or a month, because it means further paying for nothing happening. That's the curse of negative carry trades. They can be great, but if nothing happens at some point, you lose your appetite to be in the trade. So you have to just unwind it, right? And this explains why the Japanese yen was hammered. But under the surface, I think you're right, Andreas. I think they actually moved the needle potentially and opened the door with some nuances towards a move. And if you look at where core services inflation is in Japan, where wage growth is in Japan, you might want to argue that you should consider the Bank of Japan moving over the next quarter, if you ask me. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, and uh, a tip from my side, or um, a piece of information that is of relevance to everyone out there trying to watch these developments in Japan, just as the European Central Bank and the um, US Central Bank, Bank of Japan releases a set of so-called trimmed uh, inflation measures, so sort of trying to gauge the underlying trends in the um, inflation picture, and they release them two days after the nationwide uh, CPI. CPI. Uh, those measures were released on Tuesday, I think it was uh, last week, all showing an increasing momentum in the underlying trend in Japanese inflation. 
uh, and you get a very neat correlation between those trim measures and the actual um, inflation forecasts from Bank of Japan. So if these trim measures, they move up ahead of June, I would go as far as saying that a yield curve control cap increase of 25 basis points is almost a done deal in June if they continue to move up. Because what Ueda told us, and very few people took notice of this, is that if the six-month, one-year, and and one-and-a-half-year inflation forecast has 2% as the central scenario with a high likelihood of this scenario unfolding, they'll move. He said He listed the prerequisites. But Andreas, look, the thing is people are telling me, no, this is not going to happen because inflation isn't really sustainably there at 2% over the medium term. Guys, please reflect on the fact that today's monetary policy in Japan is abnormally expansionary, abnormally accommodative. We are talking about the central bank pinning domestic interest rates around 0%, been doing that for decades effectively. You're talking about the central bank that has not moved at all. It's It kept expanding its balance sheet. That's what you're talking about. That's your starting point. So if the Bank of Japan would move now the needle a little bit, it's not like they become Volcker. They just try to normalize their monetary policy. If your inflation target, as you say, Andreas, is getting there in the medium term, you don't need to become Volcker and have Japanese rates at 5%. But you can bring monetary policy to a more neutral level. So I think people are underestimating the likelihood, indeed, that the Bank of Japan will be moving. I do agree on that. So, Elf, um, I think we're approaching the phase where we need to become as concrete as we can or actionable, as we promised this podcast Uh is. Um, And I'd like to discuss the idea with you Hmm. now that uh, the Japanese yen trade was sort of, or at least the Bank of Japan kicked the can down the road sufficiently Uh, for this trade not to work. Um, Is there a better way to play this? Um, It is tricky to find good expressions of this Bank of Japan trade without having to bleed a bit until June again. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you essentially need to bleed carry uh, up until June, likely, uh, in this setup again. My take is actually, and I want your take on it after this, that if you're a European or a US investor, um, it might not be the worst idea to move an allocation into Japanese equities in this scenario. So first of all, it, it allows you to get a reflection of an increasing Japanese yen should it happen over the next few months. And we have this very special situation where um, an increase likelihood of action from Bank of Japan actually sends a very firm signal to life and pension funds, typically heavily invested abroad, to bring allocations back to Japanese soil. Uh, That is a sharp difference to European or US uh, pension funds allocating ahead of a tightening cycle from the Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank. They don't have the same they didn't have the same incentive schemes ahead of the tightening cycle from the Fed and ahead of the tightening cycle from the European Central Bank of bringing money 
closer to home to the same extent as the Japanese life and pension funds have. Um, I don't know whether you buy this argument because ultimately what I'm trying to say here, even in a, in a scenario where you get towards tightening conditions of uh, tightening monetary conditions in, in, in Japan, local life and pension funds will actually invest more locally and not move out. I think uh, I should call you uh, a Warren Steno. <laughs> Warren yeah. Buffett famously purchased Japanese value stocks, I think what was like a few months ago, made a killing on it. Um, Japanese stock market is doing well, I think. And this narrative that you just went through basically reflects a bit the European uh, stock market narrative over the last mm -hmm. few months, right? You have more hawkish central bank, but as the domestic stock market is rather value-oriented and as European investors as well had to look for alternatives elsewhere for the last five to seven years as they repatriate cash and the European and the Japanese markets are also open to foreign flows mm. uh, pretty much, you actually get both an appreciation of the domestic currency, the euro or the yen in this case, and on top of it you get domestic equities doing well, which kind of feeds into the narrative attracting even more flows because if you're a foreign investor you not only get the equity performance but also the currency appreciation. Can I say I disagree with this narrative? No, I can't. So actually, it could very well be that Japanese equities look good here. It could yeah. be. Why not? Yeah. yeah. So at least given what I listed on US liquidity, the risk of the debt ceiling um, hitting markets from a duration perspective, um, and the, let's say, small hints from Bank of Japan um, amidst uh, this 12 to 18 months, oh no, nothing will happen, uh, <laughs> headline-driven uh, market, actually improved my conviction that Japan is a pretty decent place to hide over the next six months here. Poland. In, in equities, yeah, and Poland, of course. To <laughs> I'm the, just to, Poland to the moon. <laughs> Uh, it just went up 20% in three weeks, so I don't know what to do with it anymore. It's uh, one straight line up. It's been mm -hmm. a good call uh, amongst the many other bad I've, I've done. Actually, I've had a review of how I've done um, this year on tactical trades in my book. 50% hit rate, not far from my long-term average, 53%. I do one right, I do one wrong. The trick is to try and size them well, balance the risk, take, not take profits early, cut losses early. It's all about risk management, guys. I mean, everybody of us is right about 50% of the times. If you're right 60% of the times on macro directional trades, you're a beast. If you're right 80% of the times, you're selling optionality. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what you're doing. Which it means you can be right even 90% of the times, but the 10% you're wrong, you're going to blow out spectacularly so. It's just the nature of the trade. Right, so on directional trades, it is what it is, guys. Just let's accept we're going to be wrong sometimes, right sometimes. Let's try to make money, more money when we are right than the money we lose when we are wrong. I think that's the overall um, take. Do I have a trade idea? Well, to be honest, this is ra rather medium term than tactical. But the S&P at 4,200 year as an earnings yield, assuming that forward earn earnings will realize at zero plus 3%, like analysts expect, assuming the E of the PE is correct, the S&P 500 at these levels is trading roughly at 18.5, 19 forward earnings. Mm -hmm. 
If you invert the PE, you're looking at an earnings yield of about, what is that? Maybe 5%, a bit more than that, right? Five and a half, something along these lines. Okay, so risk-free rates will be 5%. Yeah. Um, okay, in 2000, risk premium were negative for a couple of quarters. So that means people were paying a higher multiple on the S&P 500, making the earnings yield lower than risk-free rates. So the market can stay irrational longer than people can stay solvent if they try to short such a market. But together with the story that Andreas has just highlighted about liquidity, about debt ceiling resolution leading to a withdrawal of liquidity in the second half of the year, I think the odds of going long the S&P at 4,200 year are not great. I'd rather take the other side of it if I had to choose. Yeah. At least you need to uh, see imminent rate costs <laughs> for this equation to really uh, turn out in your favor. I think that's, that's a very fair Wait, 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 wait. Not imminent rate cuts, why? Then you need to ask yourself, like, yeah. why are you getting these cuts? Are those like emergency panic cuts because something has gone wrong? then you don't want the S&P 500. You want something else in your book. Are those cuts because the economy is holding okay, but inflation is decelerating and everything is amazing and it's soft lending and earnings are increasing? Yes, then 4,200 is, is a bargain. Mm. But I think the odds of the second scenario just depicted are not particularly great, at least by how I look at things, at least. No, I would tend to agree. I think that this wraps up... Um, our last edition of the Macro Trading Flow at the Blockworks channel. So remember to use the link up here uh, if you want to subscribe to the YouTube edition of the Macro Trading Flow as of next Sunday. Uh, if you're a podcast listener, you don't need to do anything at all. It will arrive in your RSS feed next week without any changes at all. Elf, before we, uh, we leave um, for this week, Let's just highlight where to find more about your macroeconomic analysis. It's on themacrocompass.com. You'll get insights every week on what's happening in the world, broken down, possibly in plain English, and actionable investment strategy as well. Where do they find you, Andres? At stenoresearch.com. Um, or else you can find both of us on Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. to find the links to our research. Uh, I'll try to still from time to time deliver uh, content in front of the paywall but if you want the full package if you want the full access you, you need to go behind the paywall now it's saturday at 9 45 p.m so let me go have my limoncello andreas bye <laughs> bye <laughs> see you guys next week